I thought of a couple of interesting little tidbits this morning as I watched the kids kind of like ants. <laughs> um, I, I would imagine that that's the experience God has with his children, uh, that we are uh, focused on ourselves. we're focused on other things. Some of us are paying attention, sometimes we're not, all of that stuff. And he has incredible patience with us. Uh, and parents find it sometimes difficult to have patience with their children uh, or with other children. But I think that there's an illustration there of uh, our need for God's patience as well. And uh, that, that's interesting. The other thing is, uh, when you see the joy on a child's face that's just uh, unabashed, uh, that's just a, a great thing. And I think God... Uh, likes to see that we are joyous as well. Uh, sometimes we don't let our face know that, you know. All right, we have um, recently completed a series on the last days in the world to come. Now, it's not possible in any series to cover the subject completely. And in uh, the last few weeks, as I was finishing up that series, I was confronted uh, in some counseling sessions and some classes and on Facebook. Uh, with a growing awareness that the church has some serious challenges that are going to affect your children and your grandchildren. Um, one, one of the advantages of living to a, uh, uh, a ripe old age, and I'm not, I'm not ripe yet, <laughs> but uh, the students who come into Cal Baptist um, this September uh, and the last several years are, uh, I am three times their age, over three times their age. Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff. Uh, and when people uh, start talking, I saw some people on uh, some reporters this week talking about how old they were uh, because they were talking about what it was like in the 80s. In the 80s, I was in my 30s, you know. So, uh, so I, I'm thinking, what are you, what are you talking about, Right. There is something about as you grow up that, uh, and you grow older that you begin to have a historical perspective. Um, and you see patterns and cycles so that you can discern the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times. And you can see the direction that the nation and the culture is going. Now when you first see these patterns, you think they're going to just go forever, right? Uh, this is it, we're going off the deep end, right? Or things just are going to get better and better forever, uh, but the problem is that patterns don't stay, they swing back and forth. And as you live older, you begin to notice those, those uh, cycles and patterns. So I want to address something with you that's not new, but has a renewed emphasis uh, in regard to our congregation. And that's maintaining the knowledge of the truth of God's Word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path as the world around us begins to get darker and darker. Um, if, you, if you grow up at different generations, uh, and if you, you can see this in Israel and you can see this in the church, there are generations that grow up where it appears that the world is becoming more and more affected by the gospel. And then you have times when it is less affected by the gospel. Uh, and so the reading that was just done that said when the the mention of the resurrection came, there were some who mock. That's the darkness. And there are some who, who say, well, we'll hear about it later. Those are the sleepers. 
And then there are those who join and get it and come to the light, that they may walk in the light as he is in the light. And so those, those three responses have different uh, cycle patterns. And we are beginning to enter into a period where the mocking of the gospel and the mocking of the resurrection and the mocking of anything having to do with a biblical faith is, uh, is, is becoming uh, a dominant theme. Which means that your children are growing up and being formed and shaped in that context. Uh, I grew up in a time when the Jesus movement was causing uh, quite a uh, reaction in the opposite direction. Where more and more people were turning to God and it, it seemed like we were just going to revive ourselves into a full worldwide thing. It didn't work out that way. But those shifts go. So you need to be aware as parents and grandparents that your children are growing up in a very dark uh, time in, in our culture. And that those patterns are talked about in the scriptures. So before I talk about that pattern, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is one of my favorite uh, biblical texts. Uh, it's a psalm that is specifically about the Word of God, and every section of it is about that. But there is a passage that I think is important. It is written in Hebrew so that the Hebrew letter nun uh, is, is the, uh, and the N sound is, is the uh, first letter of every verse. They don't do it in English in the translations, but that's the format of the, of the psalm. And he says, your word is a lamp to my feet, verse 105, and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it. In other words, I'll do what I said. Uh, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Uh, as we have said, all that God commands, we will do. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Uh, when we are struggling it is God's word that we need. Accept the free, off, free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. Let me praise you, Lord, and teach me your ways. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. Lord, I've got decisions to make. I have to, I have to work these things out, right? But I'm doing it by not forgetting your, your commandments, your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have not wandered off the path. I have inherited your testimonies forever. The narratives of your, your righteous dealings with those who have trusted you. For they are the joy of my heart. Uh, I watch how you cared for Abraham. I watch how you cared for David. I watch how you cared for Samuel. I watch how you cared for Paul. And therefore I am joyous that you will care for me. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I'm committed to walk this path. Now this passage begins with, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, when, uh, when the day is bright, you don't need much of a light, right? Uh, used to hate when I was in a little Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts thing, and we always had the flashlights and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, you know, why did we have to carry those during the day? You know, because they just wait. Uh, but boy, was I glad to have it at night. Because when we walked away from the campfire, heading out for there, I couldn't, I didn't know the path that well. 
And so I needed that flashlight to, 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 lamp, to be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now the flashlight was great because I could shine it down a long ways and see what was there and then go back to that. But a lamp, if you watch a lamp, you can't really do that. You lift a lamp up and it blinds your eyes and you can't see that far. God's Word doesn't give us all the steps. It gives us the steps that we're about to take and shows us that pathway. And so knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the Word of God is critical for a period of walking through darkness. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian family. My family was not, were not believers. And yet, most of what I was taught as a child in the 50s uh, was things that were biblical principles. So the biblical commandments were taught by my school teachers, and they were taught by uh, my neighbors, and they were taught by uh, organizations, the Y Indian guides and other things. And I was, all of those biblical notions were just part, they were just part of the culture. And so even not being a believer, I was, I was guided by that light. But now, in a time when the teachers aren't teaching it, and the the organizations aren't teaching it, uh, we're going to have to be more careful about staying close to the Word. And so I want you to look at a passage that uh, I have been going over as I've watched people say some of the dumbest things in the name of God I could imagine on Facebook. And people living lives that are just so contrary to the Word and then wondering why their life is a mess in counseling. And then uh, in the classroom, uh, this notion of uh, what people think God wants that has little or nothing to do with the Scriptures has made me realize that there is a generation that is growing up, that your children are growing up in, that is described in Second Timothy chapter 3. Now there's a context to this, obviously, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll get there. And uh, Timothy, this book is being written by Paul to Timothy, almost in a sense of training him for ministry. Um, And so, in some cases, the text may be more uh, important for clergy, but I think they're important for parents, because parents and clergy are doing the same thing. They're discipling, discipling the little ones, right? The new newbies in the faith and those children who are growing up in the faith. So in the context of him talking about uh, people going the wrong way and hopefully God will give them repentance and a knowledge of the truth, he says these words in chapter 3. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, the last days... are both a broad period and then a very final period, right? So John tells us we're already in the last days and those who are anti-Christ are already here. He doesn't mean that there won't be an absolute worse one. So what you have to think about these patterns of Scripture is that as they come, they kind of, they kind of, uh, 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 they, they, they swell and then they back off and then they swell further and back off. Culture doesn't just go in a straight line. In the same way that people grow up in growth spurts, and you see people having a growth spurt, you, and during the growth spurt, you say, man, if they stay growing at this rate, uh, by the time they're 15, they're going to be uh, 
12 feet tall, right? Well, that's not going to happen. But during the swells, this stuff happens. And this is what he's discussing. In the last days, we are in the last days, and those patterns are beginning to swell, and then they ease off, and then they swell again. But each time they get worse and worse towards the ultimate last days, where this will be seen in its fullness. So I want you to listen to these texts, and you can see that it is clearly swelling at the present time. Is this the last swell? I don't know. I, I don't think so. But it's going to be, I think, a pretty significant one. So he says, Men shall be lovers of self, verse 2, and lovers of money. Uh, this idea of loving self and loving money is ab- absolutely describing uh, the American present culture. The American present culture is about two things. Making people feel good about themselves, the self-esteem movement, and making people think that the answer to everything is economic. And if we have enough money, or if we get enough education to get money, or we raise the the minimum wage and all those things, and I'm not talking about those politically. I'm talking about the mindset. The mindset that everything is about us and about success is the very thing that Paul's talking about. This last times, people will not focus on God. They will focus on themselves and their self-security and success through money. Lovers of self and lovers of money. Now he goes on and says, they will become boastful, which is what self-esteem does. You begin to boast. You become arrogant. You become revilers. Revilers are people who blow up in anger. Uh, You become disobedient to parents. You become ungrateful and you become unholy. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about a major lack of humility and of submission to authority. Uh, This permeates our culture and is found clearly in the baby boomers, but it has become entrenched in the millennials. A generation who absolutely thinks they're the greatest thing on earth, having done nothing, who believe that they are entitled to things and that things should go their way with a minimum of effort. And uh, why not? Because after all, that's what they've been taught. And so the arrogance is such that they treat everybody as an equal. So if somebody has studied a subject for four or five decades and has read on it and written on it, a freshman will come into a class and tell that person, I read this on, you know, I googled this, and I know more about it than you. There's not just a disobedience to parents. There's a complete disregard of anybody having expertise or authority, because they are their own authority, and they are their own expertise. And they react if you hold them to anything, because they they blow up in that kind of context. And they become angry that you are demanding of them that they meet a criteria. Uh, this, this is showing up quite a bit. Now, he goes on in the next chapter and he says that they are unloving. Uh, this idea of loving is the idea of somebody denying self for the benefit of another. And they're not that. They want to be loved, 
And they will love those who love them. But they are not loving in that agape uh, uh, sense. They are irreconcilable. If they've been damaged, they are never going to let it go. Permanent victimhood. And permanent retribution towards others. Which is why they are malicious gossips. What happens now is, it's not enough just to say something bad about somebody. It's done intentionally to hurt. And now you can text, and you can Google, and you can destroy people's reputation, and you can do it with apps that make you anonymous. So you can do damage to people and think that that's fun, and that that's okay. And that kind of thing uh, continues. Uh, they are without self-control. They, whatever they feel they do, whatever they, they have a sense of, they, they do that. Um, self-control is necessary to spiritual discipline because it requires self-denial. But they're, they're not capable of that. They're brutal. Brutal means they're willing to harm. I'm willing to hurt you to get my way. And they're haters of good. They don't seek what God seeks as good. They have gotten caught up in a bizarre notion of social justice. Social justice is called fairness. And everybody's equal in terms of fairness, which isn't real. Okay? I mean, you just have to play the game Monopoly once to understand that if you start out with everybody equal, a few rolls of the dice, or what we call chance, and a few decisions made by people, and pretty soon things are unevil, uneven. And then some people take advantage of that and some people are victims of that. And if you said, we're going to stop and redistribute everything all over again, within a few rolls of the dice, you're right back there again. Because that's the way of this life. And so the, the, the false notion that we're somehow going to fix that and we're going to hurt whoever won't even it out the way we want to even it out is part of this darkness that is coming across. They are treacherous. That is, they will betray people. As soon as it doesn't go the way they want, they will betray those who they claimed were their friends. They are reckless. They don't consider the implications of things, so they just do whatever they feel like doing, living in the moment, and whatever is down the road, when you say, hey, now there's an implication of that, that's not my problem, that's your problem. Because they're conceited. So what? What's your point? In other words, everything revolves around me. And they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they've even created, in some sense, the idea that uh, God is here for their pleasure. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to succeed. God wants me to have all good things. And all of that ties into this thing that it's about them. Now what the scripture says here is that they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Now what does that mean? It means that Paul's not talking about the way the world will be. He's talking about the way those within the community of religion will be. In other words, this is a problem within Israel and the church. People will begin to be this way within the church. That's what's been bothering me. 
I don't mind that that happens at UCR. I don't mind that it happens out there in public. But that it's happening on a so-called Christian campus, that it's happening among believers, that it's happening among the religious is bothering me greatly because that's that great deception that leads to the falling away that we have talked about in the last days. Because they hold a form of godliness but they deny its power to transform us into the image of Christ so that we act the way he acts instead of acting like the world with Bible verses attached to our explanations. Now what Paul says to Timothy is you are to avoid these people. You cannot walk together with someone unless you're in agreement. And the pathway of righteousness and holiness, the pathway of gratitude, the pathway of humility, the pathway of helping others is not this pathway. And so if you are walking with people who are walking that pathway, they are going to change you more than you are going to change them. And so he says that's not who you should hang out with. Now he's going to go into more detail. I think he's going to go into detail about a, the leadership among this kind of a group. Verse 6, he says, Among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now what he's saying is that there are people inside this so-called religious group that have this worldly darkness mindset, who actually are predatory. And they will seek out the weak ones. They will seek out the ones who don't understand. And they will begin to teach them and begin to impress them and begin to draw them away after their own desires. And, and that's why we have to be very careful who we allow to lead us. And he gives an example. It's an example of a text that is outside of the biblical text, but within the context of Judaism. And so he says uh, that these, this is just as Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth. They are men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Now, you guys know who these people are, even if you haven't read the Jewish text. Because if you saw the Ten Commandments with uh, 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 Charlton Heston, you saw the time when he took the, the he told Aaron to take his staff and to throw it down, and it became a serpent. And then there were the uh, the magicians who put down theirs. Right? That's these two men. These are the men who do what looks like they duplicate what God is doing and in doing so, water down the truth. They do not come to the truth. Now, they did in that case. They got stopped, and that's what he says. He says, uh, they will make no further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Well, what happened? What happened was they threw down their staffs and they became snakes. And then Moses' snake swallowed up their snake, right? They were done. 
And they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Right? So there are people who will copycat biblical stuff to draw the weak and faint and naive to themselves. Not bringing them to God, but to oppose the truth and to make things better for them. And what they're really doing is they're using people for themselves. Now he says, um, but I don't want you to do this. And so uh, we're to avoid those who walk in this darkness. And we're certainly to avoid those who lead in the walking in this darkness. Um, Now, how do these people do this? Well, there's a passage we're going to read this week in the biblical readings where Paul goes uh, to Mars Hill. We read the the, uh, passage earlier. Uh, But in the context of that chapter in Acts 17, Moses, uh, Moses, Paul goes into uh, Thessalonica. And while he's there, there are certain guys that don't like what he's preaching. And so they hire some thugs from the marketplace to go after them and then they get them in trouble with, with the authorities. So Paul and uh, his others go away and they go to Berea. And when they go there, they go into the synagogue. And there, they're received more appropriately because those Berean Jews were more noble than the Thessalonican ones because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. But then the Thessalonican Jews found out that Paul was having uh, success with the Jews in, in Berea. And so they took their group and went over and started causing trouble over there. They were opposing the truth. And what they do is, if you read the end of the chapter at Mars Hill, these people love to hear something new. And they love to hear disputes. And they love to hear talking. There's a reason that CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News is filled with idiots talking past each other. Because the culture loves those kind of discussions. Everybody's fighting. Everybody's got a bumper sticker. Everybody's got a conclusion. Everybody's got a fortune cookie answer. And and then you pick up groups and start fighting. And you create division. Creating division is the devil's work. Creating unity is what the body is about. And so, uh, what he says to them is, uh, these people don't know the truth. (coughs) Excuse me. So let me give you the context of this chapter 3 in 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. He says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Man, Recently, in almost every Messianic group I'm on on, the, on Facebook, there is some dipstick coming up with some crazy idea based on a word, based on what somebody said, so that they can attack somebody else in the movement or the church. And they do it with arrogance, and they do it with, with complete ignorance of original sources. They're just passing on malicious gossip. And uh, God's, uh, Paul tells Timothy, who's a minister of the Lord, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, how can you be doing the will of the devil and not know it? Well, you recall uh, Peter? Jesus said to him and the other disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And Jesus said, Who do you say I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Because when you're saying and doing what is consistent with the scriptures, it is the Spirit of God in you, making you willing and doing truth. Then Jesus says, I am going to suffer at the hands of the elders, and I am going to be crucified. Which is also the word of God, right? And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and says, Oh no, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you don't care about the things of God. The things of God are God's purpose being done and us being unified in his grace and in his love. And anybody who separates brethren is doing the work of the devil. It's one thing to proclaim the truth patiently, gently, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. It's another thing to take the truth and beat people to death with it and divide brethren... That's not being a prophet, that's being a servant of Satan. And we've got, the church is filled with them, and movements are filled with them, because these people take a little bit of knowledge, without a knowledge of the truth, and then they go after the weak-minded, who don't know anything, because they're not paying attention to the scriptures. But if you're paying attention to the scriptures, what these say becomes nonsense. And you realize it's nonsense and foolishness, and you'll have nothing to do with it. So Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Now you have followed my teaching and my conduct and my purpose and my faith and my patience and my love and my perseverance and my persecutions and my sufferings as it happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul says there's a different path. You can take the path of loving self, loving money, being boastful, arrogant, reviler, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossip, without uh, self-control, brutal, haters of good, betrayers, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than loving of God having a form of godliness but denying its power, you can go that way. I'm telling you to avoid that. Or you can follow the path that I'm on, Paul says. My path is one of sound doctrine. He constantly taught them of what the Messiah would do and that Jesus was the Messiah and they should trust in him. Secondly, Paul lived the truth as an example. Over and over again, he says, we didn't seek your money. We worked and paid our own way so that we weren't a burden to you. We have taught you the way to walk in gentleness and in accurate uh, following of the scriptures. We are doers of the word. 
He said, you know my purpose. My purpose is kingdom stuff, not earthly stuff. You know my faith. I am trusting God and walking by faith and not by sight. I'm not following my emotions. I'm not following my circumstances. I'm following, thus saith the Lord. Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. I am patient with people. I know that people aren't getting it fully. And so I go the extra mile with them, seeking to be patient, even if I see them ensnared. I am following love, my love for God, my love for my neighbor, my love for the brethren. I am seeking holiness. I am seeking righteousness. I am seeking unity. He says, you know my perseverance. Perseverance is patience in the, in the context of enduring up with circumstances. I'm faithful in season, he says, and out of season. The idea is that I stay consistent following God when things are going my way and when everything is coming against me. Circumstantially, I'm still staying faithful to God. He he says to Timothy, you know that. You've seen that in me. And he says, you've seen my persecutions by those who don't follow God and my sufferings. And you've seen it specifically. He tells the places where he's seen it. So what he's saying is, there are people to follow who you have seen their faith in good times and in bad. You have seen them struggle with the word. You have seen them turn from their sin when they've been ensnared and come back. You have watched them walk steadily the pathway of life. They're the ones you should follow and not some guy who just shows up and has a fancy word and a funny title. But this culture has a different kind of expertise. The culture that existed when I grew up, expertise meant somebody had experience. Okay? Today, expertise means somebody has a degree. Okay? So, instead of going to somebody who's been married for 30 or 40 years, raised children who have grown up well, we don't go to them We go to somebody who's 24, who just graduated as a marriage and family therapist, who's never been married or raised a family. Because expertise in this world is the appearance of expertise, not experience. And Paul's talking about that. You know the experience of those who have walked with God. And you know there are people who talk about walking with God, but don't. Ever learning. Always something new. Always a greater insight. Always something hidden in the text. But they don't walk it. And they don't live it. And, and, and as soon as things aren't going their way, I'm going to have to shut down this ministry if you don't give us money. Because they are lovers of self and lovers of money. So Paul says, watch out for this. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Nobody cares if you teach the Bible. And nobody cares if you believe in God. But You start living it. You start changing your life to conform to the biblical text. It's going to mean that you will live different than other people. And at that point, you will begin to see persecution. You will be shunned. You will be mocked. You will be mistreated. It may be light. It may be heavy. But that's it. Your children are going to grow up in a culture that is more likely to mock them for living biblical principles than to praise them for living in biblical principles.
He says in verse 13, evil men and imposters. So that's what we're talking about. Talked about the evilness of men. And then he talked about these imposters. Will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. This is not going to go away. But you, however, are to continue in the things that you have learned. And you have become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. But it's not just following the models. Those models are doers of the word. And so he says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. And he's not talking about the gospel. Because the gospels have not been written yet. He's talking about the Tanakh. He's talking about the Torah and the prophets. Children need to be well versed in what we call the Older Testament. It is the foundation for everything in the New Testament. And if they have that foundation and then they have the Gospels, nobody will twist the Gospel because they'll have it deeply rooted in the Law and the Prophets. You have known the sacred writings which are able to make give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now he's not talking about a salvation of the individual. He's talking about the great salvation of God. The restoration of the kingdom. The restoring of the creation. The salvation of the people. The restoration of Israel. All of that is found in the Torah and in the prophets. And he says all of that scripture is inspired of God. It's a great word here. I love this word. Inspired is uh, basically it is God breathe. God's breath. Now, as I'm talking to you right now, I am breathing out. That's how I can voice what I'm voicing, so that you can hear my word. If, if I just mouth the words and don't breathe out, it will do you no good. It is God speaking that these scriptures are. This is God's. Everybody wants to hear from God. What's he saying in my dreams? What's he saying in my circumstances? What's he saying? That's not where God talks. Now, God does do things for us in there. He's working all things together for good, but he's not explaining anything to us there. He's explaining it to us here in the text. We must stay close to the text. They are the light to our direction. You don't take your experience and interpret the Bible. You take the Bible and interpret your experience. And if your path is wrong, you turn from that path and walk his way. So Paul says evil is going to get worse towards the second coming. But you are to continue to be sure and certain in your knowledge of the truth. And this is based in the scriptures of God, which are inspired by God's speech. And they do something. The scripture doesn't just give you the gospel. It gives you more than that. It gives you sound doctrine. It's good for teaching. It's good for reproof. Reproof is motivation to get you to get up off your rear end and do something. For correction. So when you are walking the wrong way, it brings you back on the right path. And for training in righteousness, advanced discipleship is found in the scriptures, not in some teacher who's doing a seminar somewhere. So this chapter is there, so Paul says, so that the man of God, we could say the woman of God, we could say the child of God, the person of God can be thoroughly furnished, fully equipped to every good work. Because our faith must produce good works or it's not a faith. There are people who have turned the doctrine of grace into license. 
And the doctrine of grace should make you so grateful to God that you say, what can I do for you? Now, you know this. Somebody, you've got a major bill. Let's say you've got a ten or $20,000 bill. Okay? And you don't have the money. And somebody comes up and says, I'm going to pay that for you. And they pay it for you. And you say, why? Just because I, I care about you. I favor you. I'm, I'll be gracious to you. Okay? How do you feel about that person? You ought to feel grateful. And if they said, uh, could you help me carry this uh, box into my garage? Yeah, absolutely, right? What else can I do for you, right? Not because they're demanding it, but because you're grateful. But he said these people are ungrateful. Thanks for dying for me, Jesus. Now I'm on my own. That is not gratitude. That is not our faith. And there are more and more people growing up with an attitude of either chasing every bizarre doctrine or taking an attitude of, I believe and therefore I can live my life every, any way I want. Lover of self and lover of money. And that's okay because that's, that's why Jesus died for me. I'm, why wouldn't he die for me? I'm such a wonderful person. That mindset is going to destroy a generation. Your children are growing up in that generation. So, we need to get back to the scriptures. Uh, We need to study them that we may know the truth. We need to do them. We need to correct ourselves where we get off track. And we need to continue to learn to grow in grace and in knowledge of God. Lest we be those who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth is in God's word. Let's pray.